Well, you know, when you look at migrants, uh, wherever they are in the world, well, basically they have two main financial concerns. The first one is to remain financially close to their relatives, to their families, and being able to support them financially. And the second one is for them to be financially secure and able to respond to their own emergencies. Eventually, there is a third one, which is the ability to grow wealth, but this comes on a higher level. Hello and welcome to the Finterview. I am Amal Kotak, Head of Partnerships and Integrated Finance and Head of the Fintech Foundation Incubator Program. I'll be your host for today of our Founders Diary series, where each episode we have an awesome founder share their entrepreneurial journey to date. Um, in this journey, we have Omar from Slide Money, a B2C startup on a mission to financially include migrants by giving them control over their money, which um, has been a pretty hot topic for the last few years. So Omar, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? Thank you, Omar. I'm doing great. I'm very happy to be here to speak about Slide. Yeah, no, definitely excited to learn a little bit more um, about your journey. But I guess to start with kind of what brought you to this point to kind of jump in and, and start your own fintech um, startup? Because that's a, it's a scary, scary world to jump into. It's a terrible decision as you were talking earlier. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, it was a long road, actually. It, I, I think it, it can go back to you know, me being a child actually and traveling from a country to another, actually I had the chance to having parents that are diplomats, you know, to be able, I was born in Qatar, then we went to Oman, then Morocco. Then again, you know, after my, after high school, I went to France and so I had, I had this international background that gave me, you know, a cultural wealth, I believe that allowed me to have, um, for sure a different point of view, you know, on, on the world or, or, or on how it should work. And so when I came to France the first time as a foreign student, first to study law, I was, uh, you know, of course, very happy to be there. But then I was confronted to the joys of international payments. You know, as any foreign student, I would wait for my parents' allowance every month. And sometimes it would take days and sometimes it would unfortunately take weeks. And so, you know, this was a terrible experience for me and very frustrating one you know, kind of started building up for this, let's say, willingness to change the financial system. I mean, I have always believed that uh, we could do better and that the financial system should actually be centered around people instead of just profits. Because when we look at it, um, you know, I've been always very attracted to how money can change people and change society. And I, we believe actually that money is not just a tool, it's a way of expression. And so, especially when you know how to use it. And so, you know, building up on this frustration, actually in 2014, I came back to Tunisia. I dropped out from my law studies and I started business studies in Tunisia. I was also very happy to come back because there was the revolution at that time, uh, you know, that happened in Tunisia. And I was happy to, you know, come back and be able to contribute to that. Uh, and then I figured that the problem wasn't actually about necessarily about democracy in Tunisia, it was mainly an economical one. People needed to know how to make money, needed to know how to manage their money, and most importantly, needed to have access to the right financial tools, you know, to be liberated. And so, um, in the same time, I also discovered uh, blockchain and cryptocurrencies, and this was, for me, a revelation. Like, finally, we had something 
that could allow us to change the governance systems and most, of course, part of these governance systems, the financial system. And so this is how pretty much, you know, slide as an idea started to grow. And right now, well, it became what it is. That's super interesting. I mean, you've touched on a few really interesting topics I want to jump into, but the one, the first one is, um, having done a few of these podcasts or before, it's so interesting how many fintech participants, be they, you know, people who work at fintechs or founders do it because they have a similar background to yours where they lived in multiple countries and travel the world and kind of setting up in a new country as a migrant or expat uh, comes with its challenges and not least, you know, bank accounts and payments and receiving money from abroad. And it's, um, it's always great to see where, and I think it's always the most impactful where a founder is looking to solve a problem that they personally experience because you're then a user, right? And so you know what the user pain points are. Um, and I, I've always just found that the best founders tend to be the ones who experience the problem the most. Do you, do you have a similar thought process there? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when, when you basically, when you, when you create any company, you are trying to solve a problem. So if this problem, you are living it yourself, well, you are your own persona, basically, you are your own customer. And so you know exactly what your target customer is thinking, uh, what their problems are and what their needs are. And you have, um, you know, it's easier for you actually to communicate with them and get into their minds and actually understand what their needs are. So for sure, when you're solving a problem, you're solving yourself, you're living yourself. Well, you know, it's, it's definitely the best way to do. But then how did you validate that other people have the same problem as you? Like what sort of user research, um, did you perform to see, is it just you that has this problem or, or are, is there a enough people in the market that you could make a successful business out of this? Yeah. Great question. Well, you know, sometimes we, when we look at this kind of problems, we think, well, for sure, many people have this problem and I don't need to do any user research. Well, actually you need to always, and uh, sometimes it's easier than other problems, but you know, in my case, well, basically as soon as I had the idea of slide, well, I was in Tunisia at the time. And so what I did was taking a plane to Paris. I have my sister who lives there and I went there for a week. And basically every day I would go to Bellevue where there, Belleville, where there is a, you know, a hub of migrants, especially North African ones. And I had my iPad and a survey and I would talk to people, just tell them, okay, how do you transfer money? What are your pain points? Um, you know, how are you, how much are you paying right now? How, how much, how many time, like how long does it take for a transfer to happen, et cetera, et cetera. And I talked to almost 350 people, maybe 400 people, you know, in a couple of days. And this will basically gave me the beginning of my market research and allowed me all to give me the strength basically to validate the idea and start the, the project uh, seriously. That's great. I mean, there are so many founders you speak to that thing that just because you have a problem or I personally have a problem that everyone must have this problem. So it's so refreshing when you speak to like yourself and you're saying, no, I, I went and I stood on the street corner and I approached people and I validated that it's not just me, but a whole high proportion of the population. If everyone has this problem, how come no one has already tried to solve it? <laughs> exactly. Well, 
you know, this is why you have to make your research because it's not about only, it's not only about the problem, actually, it's about how are you going to solve it? You know, when you have a problem, well, you can solve it in many different ways. And some ways are going to be attractive to the market and to the people you're targeting and others are, you know, even if it's the best offering ever, sometimes you cannot get the customers. If you cannot communicate to them, if you cannot, you know, talk their language and for that, well, you need to understand them and what better way to, than talking to them to understand them. Absolutely. But then, so you've identified the problem through your own experience. You've kind of validated it through user research. What was the moment where you were like, you know what, if this is it, it's going to be me that solves the problem. Was there ever an ele element of uh, doubt where you were like, this is a lot of work, this is scary, like, do I have a family maybe to support? Was there any hesitation to kind of jumping in feet first, head first, and building slide money? Or were as soon as you identified, you are like, this is it, this is my calling to solve this issue? You know, in the beginning, it was like, okay, I'm all in. Uh, I mean, I, I sold my car to make a proof of concept. <laughs> you know, this is how I started. Basically, after going to Paris, exactly, I went back to Tunisia, I sold my car. And well, basically, with this uh, small amount of money, I basically built a proof of concept, you know, hiring a software company to do it for me. Because I, I, I'm, you know, I'm knowledgeable in blockchain, but I don't develop. I'm not a developer myself. And so I thought, okay, I need people that help me. And then after that, well, you know, when the adventure actually started, when I recruited my first employees, had my co-founder join me, this is where all the hesitation starts because you're not alone anymore. And well, you have responsibility towards your team, but also towards the people you are making promises to, which are, you know, the customers, uh, your partners and your investors in the end. And so. Of course, you know, any entrepreneur goes through hesitation. Um, the thing is, well, I mean, you cannot avoid that, but you can, well, what you have to do is being able to go through, you know, this hesitation and this imposter syndrome, let's say sometimes that comes, comes to you and will say, okay, well, even though no one did it, well, maybe I am the first one you might, I mean, there has to be a first person that doesn't. And well, for us, you know, one of the best moments were our first transfer, actually, you know, when we did this proof of concept and we did this first transfer between Tunisia and the European bank account and where we had, you know, basically three euros sent between Tunisia and, and the European bank account. And this happened in second. And so at that point, okay, we said, well, the system works. And I mean, definitely there's value in it and people need this. Well, let's get it out into the markets. And so right now, the focus is not only technological, but also how to better communicate it. Because you have to also get the trust of the of your target customers. And this is not an easy task in the financial industry. No, I, I definitely agree with that. People always, when they join the finance or fintech industry, I think when when they before they join, they're like, my my idea is logical and it makes sense. So it should be relatively easy to build and put something together and for for whatever reason and that logic is sound right but for whatever reason building a fintech is always so much harder than i think people expect and what have you found specifically related to being in fintech that has been harder than you thought it would be before you started i think the hardest is definitely regulation 
you know, before starting the project, I thought that building the technology is going to be one of the hardest or the most time consuming, let's say, and resource consuming. But in the end, it happens to be regulation, you know, because you have to comply with many rules, especially when you are working on, you know, multiple markets or working on international money transfers. Well, you have to be careful, be compliant and, you know, these regulations are here for a reason. And so you have to be able to adapt your system sometimes, and sometimes you can lose yourself in the, in, you know, in this, uh, trajectory to being compliant because sometimes you have to tweak your solution. You have to change a couple of features and well, the challenge is being able to stay true to your value proposition while still being compliant with regulation. And the thing is, you know, regulation is not an easy task because, well, you have to understand multiple jurisdictions and, well, you have to also recruit the right resources. And even though at the beginning, uh, I was doing it myself, well, I was, you know, reading hundreds and hundreds of pages and trying to do the implementation, you know, of the compliance rules. Well, in the end, you have to, to get surrounded by the right people. Thankfully, in our case, well, we had someone that joined the team and I was actually doing this uh, quite brilliantly. That's brilliant. It's interesting, right? Because there are two types of compliance people, I think, how both have their pros and cons, right? Like one who is, this is the regulation. This is what we have to stick to. This is what will protect us and our customers. And there's no real flexibility. This it is what it is. And on the other hand, you have the type of off compliance officer or analyst who is, this is the regulation, but actually I understand the commercial and business aspect to it. So how can we let the two meet in the middle where we meet the spirit and the word of the regulation, but not allow it to become a commercial blocker that in essence could lead to the non-success of the business. Um, and I think finding a person in that second uh, example or second mentality is, is super important and it, and it sounds like the person you found kind of ticks, ticks that box. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in the end, well, you know, I like what you say about uh, following the spirit of the law, but you know, sometimes, well, even the law is meant to evolve, um, because, you know, when you look, for example, um, at the kind of target customers you are targeting, well, migrants, well, they are not necessarily included even on a legal base. You know, I mean, for sure, regulation is here to protect everyone. But, you know, when you're called uh, Muhammad Ali or Omar, for example, well, you know, compliance uh, team is for sure going to, you know, kind of con kind of do a bit more uh, of monitoring on your account than, you know, any other person. And which is normal because um, the law is in the end kind of biased. And this is why it's meant to evolve. And, um, well, it's also our role to do it in a pragmatic way that doesn't put other people in jeopardy and that keeps also the spirit of the law without actually compromising the business and, um, you know, delivering the value while being compliant and trying to change things on, on, on the way, this is, um, you know, where things start to be interesting. Absolutely. I mean, I think you, you're right, regulation and laws have to continue to evolve and i think um we're lucky in the uk that you know the fca undertake initiatives to kind of get feedback on that and so 
as that continues, I think hopefully that becomes easier for fintechs without losing the protections it affords to customers. Um, going back to kind of what you were talking about in terms of the objective of slide money and what you hope to accomplish, you talked about uh, financial inclusion, which um, has been a relatively hot topic uh, in fintech for a few years. How specifically are you looking to solve that with slide money? Well, you know, when you look at migrants, uh, wherever they are in the world, well, basically they have two main financial concerns. The first one is to remain financially close to their relatives, to their families, and being able to support them financially. And the second one is for them to be financially secure and able to respond to their own emergencies. Eventually, there is a third one, which is the ability to grow wealth, but this comes on a higher level. And today, when you look at it, well, sending money back home is slow and or expensive. And migrants are easy prey to money transfer operators um, that charge them excessive fees. And also the lack of transparency is, is a big issue. Um, you know, fees are being sometimes very creatively hidden by money transfer operators. And it's interesting, you know, how how things are, are evolving sometimes. Um, then on the second part, well, lack of education or financial education or basic financial reflexes um, makes it sometimes very difficult for migrants to build financial security. So it easily becomes a daunting task uh, that prevents them from being secure, even when they earn high revenues sometimes. And when it comes to investing, well, it's simply, you know, they simply don't know where to start and it rapidly becomes unachievable and difficult. So basically our solution is um, an app, cards, and an account for everything financial for migrants in Europe. Uh, so we start with a focus on the African diaspora in Europe and more specifically the North African one. And well, basically Slide is a Euro account for with an international debit card for everyday operation. And we focus on two main value propositions right now. The first one is money transfer. So we want to disrupt remittance with basically free international money transfer services that up to 300 euros. So any amount up to 300 euros is free to send for us. And uh, over that, well, it's just a 0.6% fee, which is a fraction of the cost. And this is achieved well, basically with um, a marketplace, a unique marketplace we've built for international money transfers that matches between peers. And, you know, it's a Kind of an interesting way to handling this problem. Uh, and uh, maybe you can talk about it later, but it was interesting to make this experience actually uh, happen. And the second thing, well, we help them uh, reach their financial goals with uh, first a gamified financial education uh, content library. And this is coupled with some budgeting tools and automatic savings, savings strategies. Ultimately, we want them to achieve financial security in a simple and frictionless experience without them even worrying about it. Um, because this is the problem of, you know, financial security and financial prosperity. Well, it's making it automated because as, as long as you have to be disciplined, you know, to be financially secure, well, usually people won't be disciplined. And so, especially in our day and age, well, we are got used to convenience. So the more it is convenient, the better it is. And this is how we want to make it. We want to make financial security convenient for everyone. I mean, it, it's definitely an admirable goal. Um, 
and obviously from from my side, I hope it works. It's it's interesting you touched upon the transparency piece of money transfer and stuff because I think there's been a few people that have looked to solve a money transfer problem before by saying zero percent or super low fees or or interbank rate, but then. And that's good from an initial launch perspective, but the long-term business model, it's hard to support that long-term um, because they're generally in in finance and fintech, as, as you're probably well, and, well aware, but for our listeners who may not be, unless you're doing lending, monetization is so hard in fintech. Um, so I guess my question to you is, how do you think you can continue offering such a competitive rate and competitive product as you scale? Are there other avenues of monetization you're looking at already that may cover any challenges you foresee? Absolutely. Well, you know, as you said, there are so many costs that are, uh, you know, involved in building this kind of infrastructure that usually it's not sustainable. So you have to get creative. Um, so in our case, well, we first have, you know, a transactional model where we get commission over for transactions over 300 euros. And so in this point, where we get commissions, um, and other than that, well, we are planning on building on all the other services, you know, that are built around the account. So basically people would come for the account and the remittance service, but they would stay for the savings strategies, for the investment strategy and for the whole, you know, financial world and financial convenience we offer them and so at that point offering this convenience will would come with a cost and so we are planning to introduce a subscription model at some point and um, eventually we also believe that um, you know we believe that peer-to-peer -peer infrastructure is actually the future of the financial system and so with this belief well we think that at some point slide will probably become a, an open company uh, you know, owned by its community. And so eventually introducing a cryptocurrency down the road could be something interesting for us. Yeah, so that makes sense. I guess my question here would then be, uh, and without giving any, you know, confidential information away, is on the P2P element, which you've touched on a couple of times in terms of the matching of, say, FX and international payments. Why do you think that's the future and how... Is that going to help, say, either reducing costs on your side and for your end customers? Like, where where does the benefit derive from? <laughs> well, you know, we can we can maybe take an example actually to, to illustrate that. Uh, when you look at international money transfers right now, you would have uh, people, for example, in France wanting to send money to Tunisia, uh, and these people well, would go through to their banker or Western Union or whatever. And so these money transfer operators would use the intermediaries sometimes, each one taking their time to process the transaction and taking a cost. On the opposite way, you would have Tunisians sending money to France as well, you know, for their child uh, studying abroad or to pay a business for a, an invoice or whatever. And so going from this idea, well, we thought, why would we let people actually, you know, going through all these intermediaries when we could actually create a marketplace that could match their needs and the money doesn't have to even move across borders. So the effects actually happens as a kind of an agreement, a tacit agreement between the two peers wanting to send money across borders. 
And all we did in Slide is building this system that made this peer-to-peer, -peer, um, you know, experience convenient and seamless. That's all we did. Uh, I mean, people are doing it already. You know, that's what we call the Hawela system. <laughs> that's what, you know, which is not necessarily a great experience uh, because, well, you have to call your friend or to call someone, whatever. And, um, and in our case, well, we made it convenient. And we believe that with technology right now, uh, especially with decentralized technology, you know, that is evolving day after day. Well, eventually at some point, uh, everything is going to be connected. And well, at, when everything is connected, well, people don't need, you know, to, to actually go through intermediaries anymore. They would ex definitely exchange directly between each other, value between each other, including money. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the Havana model there, and it's in essence what correspondent banking relationships do when they're trying to settle, like major banks settling with each other, right? They don't actually physically move funds. They're basically just netting settlements off against each other. But, but that's at the like billions of dollars a day kind of mark. And I guess what you're trying to do is offer that same benefit and saving, but to an individual retail user matching one-to-one -one with someone else. What if one side is um, oversubscribed to the other? How do you handle that discrepancy? If you have 10 people in Tunisia wanting to send a net 1,000 euros, but only on the other side, someone with 500 euros going the other way. How do you handle that discrepancy? You then as a company pre-fund that 500 and wait for the other side versus um, the other side kind of waiting for someone else to come in. Like, you know, you get their time delays and stuff. Have, have you thought about how to handle that side of the model? Absolutely. I mean, this is um, one of the main challenges of any marketplace, you know, having the both sides actually kind of equal. And uh, well, there are multiple solutions actually to that. Uh, the first that the first one is that, and this is why we also need financial institutions, you know, big financial institutions also to enter the game because they have the money and they have the capability to fund this kind of initiative. And so we believe that besides individuals right now that need well, to transfer money, well, when you look at banks in, in North Africa, for example, well, they have a lack of uh, hard currencies as well. They have a lack of euros, they're lacking USD and GBP as well. And so when you provide them with the opportunity to actually, well, provide, become a market maker, and provide liquidity to the market and for a better rate, even better than, than, than what their correspondent bank would give them, well, you know, we can build relationships at that point. And this is the kind of uh, solution we are exploring right now. And of course, well, this kind of solution cannot be built from the beginning. So we have been talking to a couple of institutions, but uh, right now we are taking a way more pragmatic approach, which is just to get customers, you know, uh, involved in batches and trying to make them match, you know, kind of an, in a manual way. And it's been working pretty well, um, you know, and at some point also we will be evolving as well our system to make, you know, uh, let's say one offer match with like, multiple ones, etc. So there is a couple, many, many solutions. It can be technological and it can be also on a partnership level but also on the marketing and, and let's say customer level as well. Great. That makes sense. And then on the financial education piece, you talked about helping customers save, I guess, 
is that harder nowadays than ever with the with the uh, I hate to say these three words, but the cost of living crisis, um, where or or does it make it even more important because of the cost of living crisis to help people say, um, on specifically when you look at say maybe the migrant market where on an average level maybe incomes tend to be lower uh, for migrants than otherwise, how do you kind of plan for that element of the product to work? First of all, as you said, the cost of living is increasing, and so it makes it even more important for people to have, you know, the, the, let's say an emergency, an emergency fund. Um, the second thing, which is related to the first one, well, the cost of living is evolving because we are in a kind of in a constant financial crisis. I mean, we have since 2007, I mean, maybe since I was born, actually, I've been hearing financial crisis almost every other day. And so it became kind of a constant. And so people have to learn how to build emergency funds, but also how to take care of themselves, uh, you know, when the financial system actually cannot guarantee this, uh, this safety, let's say. And uh, the second thing, well, it's usually, it's more psychological actually war than an educational one, because we are often richer than we think, uh, and we just don't know where and how to start. You know, when you look, for example, I, I could take your example and I'm sure it could work. You know, I'm sure any, any of us, you know, goes, grabs a coffee at Starbucks, you know, a couple of times a week, you would go to McDonald's or you would go eat in any fast food or restaurant or anything. And if you actually cut part of these costs or these expenses, well, you would find yourself saving maybe a hundred or 200 euros or pounds, you know, a week. And well, it wouldn't actually harm your lifestyle. I mean, not that much, um, but you would have still have 100 or 200 euros uh, of an excess. This could go to an emergency fund. And at some point when you have enough in this fund, well, it would go to an investment account. And this investment account would then help you build wealth. And well, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 years, if any of there's a financial crisis, well, you wouldn't be affected. And this is where actually everyone um, it's a point where everyone should get, at least this is for sure, this is a point where rich people are, uh, you know, because they are financially educated and they know they actually have these financial reflexes, you know, from, uh, they are taught these financial reflexes from a young age. Um, but you know, we, they don't teach us money. They don't teach us financial education in school. Um, I mean, at least not the, the one I went to. And so. <laughs> So it's very important actually to teach people how to handle their money um, and how important it is to take care of themselves. We are just providing the tools. I absolutely agree with that. I think there's that saying, the eighth wonder of the world is the effect of compounding, right? A hundred pounds a week compounded over 30 years probably equates to like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds, right? So, um, over a time frame, so it's. It's definitely something which, yeah, even I consider myself a semi-educated, more educated person. It took me a while into my late 20s to realize that, you know, that I should be thinking about this and planning for this and looking at putting a certain amount away every month and, and not going to the Starbucks or the Nando's or the KFCs of the world every, every few days, um, which is good for my bank account and my waistline. Um, so yeah, definitely, 
definitely something which I think if people knew earlier the importance of it and seeing, well, such a small change could lead to such a massive impact 20, 30 years down the line, as you said, it opens eyes, right? Because when you're like, oh, 10 pounds a week, like, what's is that really going to make any difference to my life 30 years from now? I think the answer is yes, it could in, in the right set of circumstances. Yeah, definitely fully agree with that element of building that education or even just the exposure to information, which I guess is education and just another, another way of saying it. But yeah, just giving people the tools and knowledge to make better decisions, right? Exactly, exactly. And when, when we see, you know, new generations right now, Gen Z, I mean, they have this kind of figured out from a young age. And so they are able to start, I mean, for me, when I was in early 20s, I, I didn't think about retirement. <laughs> I didn't think about anything related to that. But right now, I mean, you have people at 18, 19 years old, they would say, okay, I'm going to work, but also I want to put money aside. I want to invest. I want to, you know, grow wealth from a young age because they are actually uh, aiming to retire at 30, 35. You know, maybe it's not for the right motivations, but well, they are doing it and um, they start to really understand the importance of it. And also we see that, uh, you know, traditional banks, they have right now, I believe they are evolving from a role, uh, you know, of being indirect, uh, let's say directly affecting society by being uh, directly servicing, uh, you know, customers by becoming these huge institutions that would be facilitators more than anything. And fintechs are here to actually better understand the customers and deliver the right products to them with the, the help of the big financial institutions and not the other way around. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, historically, bank accounts um, from the, the major retail banks that you mentioned have been generic products that tick box for everyone, right? Like it's a way to receive money and maybe pay money, but then all the kind of ancillary services that you talk about, the education, the access to investments and wealth was generally reserved by the bank for their highest earners and biggest spenders because that's where they could monetize it a little bit more. And now with the emergence of fintechs, being able to create that personalized products for different groups of individuals, that element of hyper-personalization and the element of, you know, I want to attract users and keep users. So I'm going to offer them products that they find interesting and exciting is I think where the value of fintechs will really comes into play. And I think, again, you're right. Banks will move to being infrastructure more than anything, like providing the underlying layer of infrastructure and safeguarding of client money with say the bank of England or other safeguarding banks and institutions. And that's going to be their role, right? Moving forward. Um, and fintechs will be those customer-facing brands. And I think to some extent, banks might be okay with it because we touched upon it's uh, the element of issuing an account and debit card isn't a huge uh, money earner for anyone. But so if they can focus on infrastructure and lending and all of that, then it could be a win for the customer, a win for the fintech to get the users and a win for the bank to focus on other areas. For sure. For sure. I mean, we definitely reached and. I believe we reached an acceptance level, you know, with banks accepting actually this infrastructure level and being the, at this infrastructure level and being more of a facilitator than anything. Yeah. Agreed. 
Um, and another area to touch upon then is you've obviously got such a great vision and product, um, and you've already, you know, tested that product. You've got user experience and, um, and user research and user feedback. My question would then be what made you, what attracted you to the FinTech foundation program? Um, what made you apply and what was the benefit that you thought you could kind of get from, from joining the program? Well, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest challenges is regulation and getting access to the right infrastructure. And, you know, the FinTech foundation is unique in that sense where it actually gives access to, you know, new projects and, uh, you know, early stage projects like ourselves to this access to this kind of infrastructure. And this is amazing because it allows you well to, well, to, to launch your product, to test it with people. And there's no better way to show product market fit and to actually test the value of your product than by pushing it to the market. And just for that, you know, this is tremendous value. And so also when you look at the companies involved, you know, in the FinTech foundation, starting with Intuited Finance, Samsung, uh, Enfuse, MasterCard, you know, it's very, very interesting actually to see, um, well, basically it's, you have the whole tool set of tools, you know, for everything you need to build a FinTech over there. And so, well, it's kind of an offer you cannot refute. <laughs> I, lo I love to hear that. And I guess, well, from that has, so have you found that it's the access to the tools that has been the most important or the access to the, to the mentors or to the, like the workshops, what, what is it, what has helped you the most in the first, you know, six to eight weeks of the program? What have you found the most valuable? Both of them, actually, it's a mix of all of that, uh, you know, because in the beginning you're, you're still a bit shy. You don't understand how, okay, how am I going to use this infrastructure? Where can I start? And, um, it actually, it's a, this is where the role of mentors actually gets in place and you know, yourself and Katie and uh, other people involved, you know, in the program have been with really helpful in that because you've been reaching out to us and telling us, okay, how are you doing guys? This is what you need to do. This is how you, how can we help basically? And, um, even ment other mentors actually coming from other companies were also reaching out and just trying to meet us and understand what you're doing. And this for sure gives you strength, but it also gives you the responsibility, you know, to be up to this, uh, to the task, you know, and to the confidence what you're giving us. And so, um, it's basically the mix of all, I mean, we've been having a couple of workshops, uh, and so I think that each of them were, was interesting, uh, you know, in a way, and, um, you know, even though it's not a specific one for your own company, well, you also, it's also a way to understand a lot of things because we are multiple startups, each one with its point of view and the questions are different. And so sometimes it makes you think, okay, this startup founder asked this question, maybe there's something interesting there. And so you start, you know, opening your views as well. Absolutely. And have you found the fact that you touched upon that, um, working with the different founders, have you found you've been able to create a kind of a strong bond or sort of community with the other founders as part of the cohort where you can rely upon each other and bounce those different ideas and questions off each other? Well, uh, you know, I've been talking to a couple long, couple founders. Um, we still haven't met, unfortunately, I wasn't here for the kickoff event, 
but uh, I will be there for the demo day. And so, um, but we've been talking together and, you know, sometimes when you're involved in this kind of program, you actually don't necessarily need to talk to other startup founders to know that we are supporting each other. I mean, when you look at our channel on Slack and there's someone celebrating something, well, everyone is happy for them because, well, we're part of the same team. Basically, we are on the same level, we're in the same cohort and their success is basically ours. And so, yeah, for sure, there's their sense of uh, community and it's very, very important as an entrepreneur at this stage. Brilliant. So we've talked about obviously your background and how you started Slide Money, um, the journey you've been on today, you're obviously now part of the FinTech Foundation. From, from your side, what does the next you know, few months versed in the next year look like? What, what do you and the team want to accomplish? For sure, right now, the focus is to launch our offering, um, you know, to make it available to everyone in the market. Um, I mean, right now we're running an alpha. Uh, hopefully soon we will launch a beta open for everyone. And the purpose would be, um, you know, by summer to launch the offering to, to everyone. Um, especially that uh, the target customers we have, well, there are seasons that are very important to them, especially, you know, end of the year, the summer, and uh, also some religious parts like uh, Ramadan, for example, etc. And so uh, our purpose would be to be there for our customers uh, on board as much as we can and uh, will become a reference in, in the target countries we are, we are, we are aiming for. <laughs> That's for sure. I love it. Having worked with you for the last few months and the team. I'm, I'm confident that you guys are going to do some great work over the next few months. And obviously, as you mentioned, your success is now my success or our success. <laughs> so the fact that I can put my name next to you and, um, in a small footprint will, will always be nice. Um, great. And then for my very last question, I, um, I don't know if you listened to the podcast with some of the, the partners earlier on, I always had a question I would ask them where if they didn't work for, um, their companies and if they were a founder what would they build uh, i can't really ask that to you because you are a founder but my inverse question would be if you weren't a founder what would you be doing would you be a lawyer which because i know you said you studied law area earlier on uh, well probably probably as being a lawyer i mean i wouldn't be able to give you an exact job but for sure i would be doing something with an impact I mean, it's very important for me to do something that has an impact. It, it was my first motivation um, to start being an entrepreneur and uh, my first motivation as well to start uh, studying law because I, I believed that I wasn't going to make the impact I wanted on society. So whatever I would be doing, it would be trying to make an impact on society. Amazing. Thank you so much, Omar, for um, your time today. It's been great to speak to you and hear about your journey and the journey of Slide Money. Thanks a lot for the invitation. I'm very happy to be able to talk a bit about a slide.